Welcome, everyone. It's such a delight to have you with us here for this very special episode of Restorative Justice on the Rise in partnership with Stephanie Lepp, the founder of Reckonings, who happens to be with us today to introduce this very special edition that has been launched. Um, uh, I'll let her tell us more about it in just a moment. Welcome, Stephanie. So good thank to have you. you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. I wanted to let everyone know about your podcast. Um, it's beautifully and eloquently put together. You put a lot of hard work into it, and you've been doing it for three years now, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, it's, it's actually um, uh, it's an exploration of how we look in the mirror and grow from what we see. But can you elaborate a little bit more on that beautiful um, tagline, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess I can also just give a little bit of, yeah, I guess context on where where the show came from. Yeah, just throughout, you know, college and, and my professional life, you know, through being involved in, in social issues and social change, um, the question would always come up, you know, am I changing anyone's mind? You know, am I actually moving anyone? on climate change or minimum wage laws or, or whatever issue I happened to be focused on at the time. And which of course then begs the question, you know, how do people actually change their hearts and minds? And, 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 and that question just kind of became a, a little bit of a fascination of mine, you know, and I, I used to keep this, this, this extremely unscientific running list of things that I thought, you know, radically transformed people. So, you know, near death experiences, falling in love, um, you know, the psychedelic experiences, you know, uh, rarely, but sometimes, but very rarely information. Um, and, and, well, and so this, this, this highly unscientific list, I finally realized might be fun to manifest in the form of, of stories, you know, of, of, of people who have actually undergone precisely these kinds of transformations. And so that is the birth. That is the origin story of reckonings, which, which, which comes from this idea that, you know, big change out there in the world, you know, ha happens in here, you know, inside of people. And, and which then begs that, that, that question, how do people actually change? How do we shift our political worldviews? How do we transcend extremism? How, what moves us to bring our ethics into the workplace? And so each episode features someone who has made some kind of transformative change you know I, anyone from yeah a deeply conservative congressman who made a dramatic shift on climate change all the way to you know um, a white supremacist who managed to transcend a life of hate and become a force for nonviolence. so mm. so it's been a pretty Very diverse powerful. cast of characters but but yeah the, the the through line is an is an exploration of this question you know how do people change and, and, and how do people change in ways that connect to or scale into broader social and political change? Oh, that's so beautiful and powerful, too. It's, it's really quite something to witness the 180-degree turns that people make in, um, in their thinking and perception of their individual and collective reality, um, whether it concerns a system or otherwise. Yeah. And, um, I definitely know in the eight years that I've had the privilege of hearing people's stories and experiences 
um, with restorative justice on the rise that um, just hearing how hands-on situations can be such a wake-up call for something different uh -huh. than what we've been um, basically perhaps normalized to think is the only way. And so that, right. that's kind of the seg that I'd like to take us into in the, this incredible piece that you put together with two people, um, segment 21. It's called A Survivor and Her Perpetrator Find Justice. And of course, for our global constituency that is listening, um, sexual assault and abuse and restorative justice are on the cutting edge um, as a, a very poignant conversation and also not just a conversation, but turning into palpable and tangible policies and practices in some pockets in our world. Mm -hmm. And so um, could you frame this segment for us? Yeah. Yeah. So this episode, uh, I, I had been wanting to do it for so long. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, 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 in kind of the, I guess the, yeah, the, the, the Me Too conversation, something that I have found missing is the voice of a survivor who got her needs met, you know, who, who, who found healing, um, and the voice of a perpetrator who, you know, skillfully took responsibility, um, you know, and, and we're not really hearing men do that, you know, and understand, so understandably men don't know how to do that, you know, we don't have models of that. And so I felt that it would be a helpful um, contribution to this, to the, to the Me Too conversation to find, you know, to find uh, a, a, a perpetrator and survivor of some kind of sexual misconduct that managed to work through it. And, and my, my way of finding that was through the lens of restorative justice. Um, and so I, I, I knew what I was looking for. I've known what I was looking for for a long time. I bothered many, many, many restorative justice practitioners and academics, you know, because this is, you know, it's, it's not only people who've managed to do this, but also then people who are willing to talk about it. Um, even though we, we are using their pseudonyms. But I, I, mm -hmm. I finally, um, I, I spoke with um, David Karp, who is maybe a colleague of yours, I know, or at least a friend of yours. And um, yeah. thankfully, I, I spoke to him, I think, almost a year ago. And amazingly, he kept my contact information. And so when he came across Anwen and Samir, and this is, again, their pseudonyms, he reached out to me and said, I, I think I found your guests. Wow. Yeah. And of course, um, you're going to get a chance uh, to listen to the entire episode in just a moment. But um, while we still have you with us, Stephanie, would you reflect, if you would, on some of the pieces of this podcast that most moved you um, or anything that you noticed between the first time that you met Anwen and Samir and then um, towards the end and the publication of this episode. Um, could you reflect uh, for us? If yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so much I want to, there's so, I mean, and yeah, this, this is how you felt yesterday when we talked and you felt like there was so much you felt and had to say about this episode. Yeah, I guess I'll just say that, 
you know, it's, it's really just been amazing to talk to both of them. They're young, they're recent college graduates. You know, it's amazing to hear her, you know, she, she knew what she needed and she got mm-hmm. it. And she is just feeling, you know, there is still pain there, of course, but she feels very empowered by this process. And it's amazing to hear that. And for him, he is very clear about the impact he had on her and how he has grown from it, you know, back to the tagline, how, how we take a look in the mirror and grow from what we see, you know, he has really taken that look in the mirror. And it's, it's, it's just really, it's, it's just really amazing to hear him and how emotionally mature he is about it all. And, you know, more emotionally mature than so many of the, you know, our public figures right now. And, and, and the way that he talks about, even just the way he talks about, you know, how he, how he, um, communicates around sexual intimacy now it's like it's you know explicitly you know you know and 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 um and clearly and honestly and in a straightforward way in a way that actually sounds and should sound to us more manly more powerful more beautiful to actually you know know how your partner is feeling and check in with them um than than to do the other thing you know and have no idea how your partner felt or maybe made your partner feel not good you know so it's 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 really it's really just been so refreshing to hear both of them and i guess yeah it, the connection to restorative justice you know from reckoning to restorative justice you know part of my intention with the show is to is to showcase the power and the beauty of reckoning you know of critical self reflection you know make it make make critical self reflection look absolutely stunning um and um, I, you know, I would say reckoning is a skill and, 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 and restorative justice requires that skill. You know, so there's like restorative justice requires you to look in the mirror and grow from what you see. I mean, that's, that's part of the process. And you hear them talk about this, you know, there's, there's kind of a lot of, a, you know, you hear people say like, oh, is restorative justice too lenient? And Right, right. And that's one of the biggest a, things, the biggest misnomer. Yeah. They both talk about how, you know, and especially him, like, it is not easy to look in the mirror and grow from, it's not easy to look in the mirror, especially if what you see there is something you're really not proud of, or something that makes you feel not great. I mean, you know, it's like, either you look in the mirror, I mean, that that's the beauty and the challenge of restorative justice, too, is that it's not just about looking in the mirror and seeing it and just feeling like a monster and feeling self-pitiful, but actually doing something about it, actually right. growing from it, actually using whatever you see in the mirror to, to provide some kind of healing. To right. Real affinity, I guess I could say, between the show and just broadly what I'm interested in, you know, making... um, critical self-reflection look beautiful inspiring us into the practice of critical self-reflection and restorative justice which 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 does that (laughs) which which invites perpetrators to you know engage in critical self-reflection um and i get yeah i mean there's so much more i I guess i guess just the last the only other thing i yeah there's a million other things i could say but one thing that is just coming up for me now is just it is just it is just a marvel to me that this, that, that, that restorative justice, even that, that there is such a thing there, there is a process that can work, you know, that can actually, you know, achieve healing and justice for, for, for people when there has been so much pain and suffering caused, you know, it is amazing to me mm-hmm. that we can even 
work it out, you know. And it's um, rather it's rather simple the um in yeah, concept. It's and simple. It's so interesting yeah. to see how, you know, the more say egregious or violent a crime is in um, you know, the more eyebrows raise about the ability for this to work, but in sexual assault cases such as this one with Samir and Anwen, um, you know, un the 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 unpacking of the different perspectives and realizing what the actual act was for Samir, um, I'm not sure if he would have been able to to get to that point of understanding without. Um, well, his own willingness, of course, but also without external supports like mm -hmm. restorative justice can provide mm -hmm. in safe spaces. So the safety of people, of um, the acknowledgement of victims and the safety for them and their voices um, is really important. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, again, I was, I was just deeply struck by how Samir, through this episode, so carefully and empathetically looks deeply at at himself mm -hmm. and um, again makes that comparison between what happened and what he was perceiving was happening mm -hmm. you know and was able to unpack that in a way that made him realize that indeed you know he had perpetrated sexual assault mm -hmm. on on this young woman Mm -hmm. um, and I, lo I, I love restorative justice for the fact that it, it challenges this idea that efficacy comes with exclusion, you know, mm -hmm. that the efficacy of justice is meted out by excluding, when, uh, when in fact, the, as much as possible and, and as safely as possible, inclusion uh, of voices mm -hmm. can actually get us to a place where that recycled harm and pain isn't something that becomes even epigenetic, you know, over, right. over generations. Right. So. Right. Well, and it, it, yeah. I just, um, I, I don't want to take too much of, uh, of your time further. I know people are probably real hungry to listen to the actual episode at this point, but in closing, um, what thoughts would you have for people who um, might, you know, still be doubting that that there's a possibility to utilize restorative justice and practices in cases such as these. What what and what yeah. do you think Samir and Anwan might have to say? Yeah, well, I I mean, I don't I don't want to speak for them. I I but I I you know, it's um, there's no silver bullets here. You know, restorative justice doesn't necessarily work in all circumstances. You know, most important. Right both parties have to be willing to do it. Most, you know, most importantly, the survivor has to feel comfortable, you know, doing it. And then the, of course the perpetrator has to agree to participate in the process. So and that's hopefully already be accountable. That's, yeah. That's already yeah. potentially a very high bar, but, um, and I guess I'd also add, it can absolutely go hand in hand with traditional criminal justice. You know, just because someone got sent to jail, you know, doesn't mean they can't work to repair the harm that they caused. Right. Um, so it's 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 really. I mean, I guess a way to think about restorative justice is its goal is to repair harm to the victim, um, and you know through well through a very through a process of engaging both the victim 
and the perpetrator. That, you know, that it, it's, it's, that, that's not specific to any kind of crime. It has even been used in the case of, of, of murder with, with murder victims' families. So it's, it's really just a matter of whether the you know, parties are willing to participate in it, whether they feel it would be helpful, helpful in repairing the harm to the victim. Um, and yeah, and I guess, I guess it just, I guess, yeah, the only other thing I would say is just kind of, you know, remind us to kind of keep our eyes on the prize, you know, keep our eyes on the goal, whatever the goal is, you know, is, is punishment a means to an end? Is it an end in itself? Like, what are we ultimately trying to achieve here? And, and one thing I really appreciate, and maybe we're trying to achieve multiple things. We're trying to hold people accountable. We're trying to find healing. We're trying to serve justice and figure out what that even means. Um, but one, you know, I, 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 you know, repairing harm to the victim is, to me, a, a, a worthy goal in and of itself. And so, you know, the, it, it is, it is, a, it is an, a helpful reminder to kind of keep our eyes on whatever it is that we're trying to achieve kind of over the long term. Mm. Thank you so much, Stephanie Lapp, uh, founder and producer, as well as host of Reckonings for being with us to introduce this very special edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise in partnership, of course, with Reckonings. Uh, a survivor and her perpetrator find justice. And for more information about Reckonings, please go to www.reckonings.show. And Stephanie, if people would like to reach out to you to find out more about your, your work or to talk to you about this episode further, how can they do that? Oh, I would love that. Please, <laughs> please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at Steph Lepp. S-T-E-P-H-L-E-P-P, -P, or you can email me at Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at infinitelunchbox.com. And yes, that is the absurd thing you think you just heard, Infinite Lunchbox. <laughs> um, all the contact information is also at reckonings.show. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Molly. Happy listening to all of you. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. You're this is an incredible episode and please give us your feedback and contact Stephanie if you wish. Really looking forward to hearing from you. Um, until next time, this is Molly Rowan Leach for Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is Reckonings. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and I'm not going to say very much about this episode except for the fact that I've been wanting to do it for over a year. So I am so grateful to have found Anwen and Samir, not their real names. And with that, here is Samir. Uh, I think it was Modern Warfare 2 was the first one I ever picked up, which was like back in 2010 or something. But basically, uh, FPS, first-person shooter video games, um, that's what I would spend nights, like literal weekends, um, staying up until 4 or 5 in the morning. And was your typical, just like, I don't want to talk to anybody, but just play my video games kind of um, teenager. And here is Anwen. So Lindy Hop is a vintage swing dance. 
Um, it has its roots in the African-American music that grew out of the 20s and 30s. Um, it's just alive and joyous, and um, there's a lot of improvisation. Um, so that's what I was doing as many nights a week as I could in high school. I think the first time I saw Samir was at a party called the end of the world party or something like that. First semester, freshman year, um, off campus house, um, lots of people. There was definitely alcohol there. I didn't have any. He was wearing, I think like a gray shirt. I think he was wearing like a black tie too. He was kind of dressed up. Um, he might've been, he might've had like suspenders on. Uh, very tall um, and pretty, like, broad, too. It, truthfully, it was her eyes. Anwen has these fantastic uh, pair of eyes and mm, just a very friendly smile. I think we got introduced, and then he said, hey, do you want to dance? And I said, well, something along the lines of, Sure, as long as it's not that like bumping, grinding type of dancing, like I swing dance. Um, and so he's like, okay, I know a little bit of swing dance. By a little bit, I mean like little to no swing, but I was willing to learn if I could talk to this, uh, to this girl Onwin. Samir found me on Facebook, like, I don't know, a week or two after that party, um, and messaged me and was like, hey, do you want to hang out? Um, he asked me if I wanted to go bowling with him. Um, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to hang out with this person or not, um, but I didn't know that I didn't want to. So we went out and tried to go bowling. Um, and there weren't any lanes open. And so then we went and just got ice cream at a store and sat and chatted. And I remember that I I didn't let him pay for my ice cream because I didn't want it to be a date. So I paid for my own ice cream. We were walking back um, and it was right in front of my dorm. And I think I like was like, well, that was nice. And I we hugged goodbye. Um, and then like, as things work, like, you hug someone and then you're like coming out of the hug there's a point when your faces are pretty close um and i think he kissed me then after that date i was like really into her and so i would text her a lot and try to hang out with her and just not get responded basically i was ghosted which is the millennial term for having somebody just stop responding to your text messages um, and so I was like, oh, okay, cool. She's not interested. Anwen's not interested. That's, that's it. That's over. So first semester ended and second semester began. And Anwen and Samir both did recruitment for Greek life. Anwen joined a sorority and Samir joined a fraternity, which threw the first big party of the semester. Anwen went to the party with a bunch of her friends, and she knew she'd probably run into Samir. I think we ran into each other going opposite directions, coming to the stairs. And I think I said something about how, like, I was sorry that I had stopped talking to him suddenly. And I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, you aren't ready for a relationship. Uh, I get it. It's cool. 
And then at some point later that night, I saw her dancing on the dance floor, and um, I went up and I started dancing with her. And I mean, she started dancing back. So we were dancing and like, kind of like facing each other, like doing the like kind of awkward like prom groove thing. Um, and I think at some point we flipped around to where my back was against the wall. And I think that's when he kissed me. At some point, I, I did kind of say like, okay, I, I want to go. Um, and that was, I was like, I don't see my friends. I want to go. So he's like, okay. Um, and I think walked me upstairs to get my coat. At which point (laughs) we discovered that the room was locked and all of my friends had left. What happened was Anwen and her friends had put their stuff in one of the fraternity brothers' rooms. Her friends had all gotten their stuff and left, but that room was now locked and the guy who lived there was nowhere to be found. So Anwen had no access to her keys or her phone or anything. Then... Um, I saw a couple guys who I knew were from my dorm. They weren't on my same floor, but I could at least get into the building. They were, they were walking back. They were like just leaving the frat house. And so I said like, Hey, I'm just going to follow those guys home. And at that point, Samir said, you can't just leave after kissing me like that. I know that I was like, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I don't want to really be with you. But I was probably also trying to be nice and was like, but you're a great guy. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, But the, the question arose like, well, I don't know where I'm staying tonight. I can't get back into my dorm. And he offered, he offered that I could spend the night in his room. I didn't want to spend the night in his room because I didn't want to have sex with him and I didn't want to keep making out with him, but I didn't know where else to go. I had no condoms anymore because my jacket was also in that brother's room. So I was like, well, we're not going to have sex, but um, I still would like to take her back home with me. It was like I had fog in my head. Like, I couldn't figure out how to get out of the situation. And I couldn't figure out how to say, I don't, like, I don't want to sleep in your room because I didn't know where else I could sleep. Be forewarned, this next section contains sexually explicit material. If you'd rather not hear it, skip ahead to 13 minutes and 35 seconds. So we went back to his dorm room. We got to his dorm room and like, as soon as we were inside, he pushed me against the inside of the door and started kissing me. Um, we ended up in his bed and I like, he kept kissing me. I was underneath him. He started to like put his hand at my crotch and like rubbed me hard and I was uncomfortable and 
didn't know what to do and he was on top of me and I was just panicking. Um, and I remember, um, he said, Oh, it would feel so good to you. Um, and I said, I don't want to have sex. And he laughed and his response was, I know I don't have a condom anyway. And went back to kissing me. Um, um, we maneuvered around. I was sitting up and he said, take it off. And I said, what? He says, my, like your shirt. And, and I like started to pull up my shirt. And as soon as he put his hand on my breast, like it was just absolute revulsion in my body. And I said, no. And I pulled my shirt back down. Um, and I like curled up on his bed. Um, and I know that I was at that point, like holding back tears. Like I hated the way his hand had felt on my breast. Um, um, there was two beds and I was like, I would love <laughs> to sleep in his roommate's bed, but his roommate took like all the comforters and pillows. Um, and, and at some point he, he like reached down, um, and like took my hand and put my hand over his, um, like he still had his pants on, but like he put my hand there and like started moving my hand. Um, and then he like took my hand away, pulled down his pants, um, put my hand back on him and said, he doesn't bite. And like, like, physically moved my hand up and down, like grasping him, um, and said something like, wow, you really, <laughs> you haven't done this before. Um, and I just, I was like curled up against him on the bed between him and the wall. He was huge compared to me. He has his hand around mine wrapped around his <laughs> making me like give him a hand job. Um, and then he said, your mouth would feel even better. Um, and he like moved me and had his hand on the back of my head um, and started pushing my head down um, on him and just like down and down and down. And I can remember feeling like I was gagging, like I was choking. I think I started crying. Um, this was both something I'd never experienced before and didn't want to be experiencing. And I, I started crying or I was very close to crying. Um, and he finally let me up and he said, it's okay. I'm hard to please. Let me just go finish up. Um, and he left and he went to the bathroom and I can remember lying in his bed, just like curled up thinking I didn't want to please you.
Um, and he, he came back into the room, um, and he got back on the bed and like, he put his arm over me, he pulled the covers up and he like laid like holding me. Um, and I, I didn't feel like I could move. Um, I remember looking across the room to the other bed and just wishing I could be on that bed instead. Um, and holding back tears and, and I eventually I fell asleep. For a couple days after that, I just was like in a blur. Um, I felt really disgusted. Um, I like hurt between my legs where he'd been like rubbing me. Um, I felt dirty and I didn't know what to do. At first, Anwen thought she had to start dating Samir. After spending the night in a guy's room, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Eventually, she ghosted him again. Well, she had stopped responding to my text messages and didn't talk to him anymore. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe that this is just a instance of like a really awkward hookup that, or a series of hookups that did not pan out. You know, sometimes when you hook up with somebody, you, you become really awkward around them afterwards. And it doesn't always come out like it does in the movies. Um, or in the porn, for that matter. I, uh, in my sophomore year, was training to be an orientation leader um, to orient new students and transfer students to the university. And so one of the trainings that were involved was Green Dot. Green Dot Bystander Intervention is a program that teaches students how to respond to sexual assault on campus. The prompter said that it's, it's, it's assault when someone uses emotional manipulation to coerce somebody to like do sexual acts. Like sexual assault isn't just based on like using physical violence. It's, it's, it's also just putting somebody in a situation where they feel like they can't say no. That night, like that, 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 that night was the first thing that popped into my head. Wait, did I, did I do this? Is this, is this who I am? Like, did this happen? Like if it ha did happen, why, why, like, does, is that how Onwin feels about this? It's like, well, no, like you haven't been like, she, like she would have reported something, but she hasn't. Maybe she doesn't see it that way. Maybe she just also views it like I did, where it was like a bad hookup and like, like a really awkward hookup. I was terrified that I assaulted her. I was terrified that I had hurt her in this way. I was terrified of myself because if this was true and I, and I did assault her, then what did that make me? Um, I was terrified of being found out. I was terrified of being sent to jail. I was terrified of all the consequences that come with, uh, that, mm, 
uh, all the consequences that come with um, sexual assault and rape. And I didn't have anybody that I was like, who I could tell because like, how, how do I say, hi, I think I, I think I assaulted and raped somebody, but I'm not entirely sure. No, um, I did not tell anybody, um, about this incident. I kept it to myself. Um, I knew that I wanted to learn more because if this, if this like hour long training taught me all this, and then maybe I need to educate myself more. So Samir educated himself more. He took a day long green dot training. He started reading about consent. He started asking his women friends about their perspectives on sex and communication. Samir used to think of sexual assault as something only perpetrated by shiftless strangers in dark alleys. Now he was seeing how sexual assault can happen between people who know each other, even between people who've already been intimate with each other. That whole year, their sophomore year, was rough for Anwin. She'd see or read something about sex or sexual assault and get stuck replaying that night over and over again in her head and get hot and panicky and feel like she was gagging. She'd started dating someone but had a hard time with physical intimacy, especially around oral sex. And she had trouble focusing on school and had to drop one of her classes because she knew she was going to fail. So sophomore year ended, and junior year began, and now Anwin decided to become an orientation leader. So she also took a green dot training, and was also disillusioned from the idea that sexual assault is only committed by strangers in dark alleys. And she also thought back to that night with Samir. And, like, oh my god. This, this this wasn't just an awkward hookup. This wasn't right. This was, this was assault. Anwen had been avoiding Samir, but now she took it to a new level. She memorized his walking schedule to make sure she wouldn't cross paths with him. She always checked before entering the campus coffee shop and the main dining hall. She always had part of her awareness on patrol duty. But now Anwin and Samir were both orientation leaders, and eventually they ended up at the same orientation training, off campus, by the water. So I knew he was on the pier because he was doing, like, bioluminescence. And he, he was on the pier, and I was on the pier, and I think I kind of, like, had put myself in a corner, um, just kind of watching and, like, waiting for when he came came by. Um, and when he walked by, I said his name. And I, I knew it was her, but I was terrified to turn around, but I did. Um, and this is the first time she and I had spoken in over, like since, since freshman year. Um, and, uh, she asked if we could talk 
And I said, yes, of course. And I said, I want to talk about that night. And he said something along the lines of like, let me make sure we're talking about the same thing. Like, let me make sure we're on the same page the night you came home with me. And I said, yes. And then I said, name that night. I, I stuttered and uh, I told her that I, I, uh, I told her that I raped her. Whoa. Um, it was, it was a powerful feeling to feel that I was not just crazy and that he also knew that it had been wrong. Yes, I knew it in my head. Yes, I knew it to myself, but admitting it to the person I did it, it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I hated myself. I wanted to kill myself. I, I, I asked her like, Hey, like, do you want me to kill myself? Do you want me to like turn myself into the police? Like what, what do you want? What, what can I do? What, what I know I can't fix this, but what can I do? Um, I know I can't fix this, but what can I do? And that's when she offered to uh, ask if we could talk more. And I said, okay. So Anwen and Samir started talking. She'd initiate and they'd meet up and try to piece together what happened that night and why and what to do about it. But over time, it became too much for Anwen. And she went back to avoiding Samir. Then came Take Back the Night. That was one of the weirdest nights of, of my college career. Take Back the Night is a march against sexual violence that happens on college campuses all over the world. Anwen started avoiding Samir again around the middle of their junior year. At the beginning of their senior year, they both ended up at a Take Back the Night march on campus. Anwen was there as a survivor. Samir was there as a support person for his new girlfriend, who was also a survivor. The march ended in an auditorium with an open mic, where survivors were invited to come up and speak. It was, I mean, unrehearsed. I walked up to the mic and started speaking pretty much. And I kind of went through the story a little bit and more just like the motions afterwards, but I didn't say his name and he was sitting in the audience right in front of me. I was actually sitting about 10 feet away from her. I tried really hard to keep myself together. Um, I couldn't look her in the eye. But I felt like such a hypocrite. Uh, this is uh, supposed to be a space that's meant for survivors and allies 
if you throw even a well-meaning perpetrator in there, does that negatively impact the movement itself? I wanted to call him out. I really wanted to call him out. But I wanted him to be able to come forward on his own. Um, I... I wanted him to be able to be standing up there with me and speaking the story with me and be able to have the story be exposed in a way that didn't just write us into the categories of like angelic, pure survivor, horrible, evil assaulter. Those things that make somebody assault, those are things that we can overcome if we learn about them and people can acknowledge that they've done something wrong and grow from it and learn from it and be better people. And I think I actually said, like, if this person comes forward and tells his story, I hope that you'll listen to him. I wanted to tell my story more. I wanted to tell people like I started feeling this, this massive like need to have other people know and to have other people know that it was him that did it. And then I went to Frank. Frank was the director of student conduct at Anwin and Samir's university. So he's the guy you go to when a student is causing trouble, cheating on exams or serving alcohol to minors or committing sexual assault. His job is to sit the student down, have a conversation, find out how bad the problem really is, and then decide what to do about it. Was there a policy violation? Should Frank set up a formal hearing with higher-ups in the administration to possibly get the student suspended or expelled? Anwen wanted help figuring out what to do about Samir, and so she went to Frank. I started talking with him, I think, about what I wanted and that I I didn't want a formal proceeding. I didn't want a verdict handed down. I wanted something to come out of it. Um, I wanted it to be a discussion and I wanted to decide with Samir what, what the results were going to be. And Frank took that and listened to me and said something like, well, that sounds like restorative justice. We usually think of justice in terms of punishment. Did the person break a law or violate a campus policy? And if so, what is the punishment for that crime? Restorative justice focuses on the harm that was caused. How was the victim impacted? What are their needs? What can the offender do to help make things better? So, restorative justice is a response to crime that engages offenders and victims in repairing the harm that was caused. The goal is to find a resolution that achieves justice for everyone involved, that achieves healing for victims, and that allows offenders to take responsibility for their actions. The idea is that because crime hurts, justice should heal. Anwen didn't want a formal conduct process, which would go through the university administration and be entirely out of her hands, and probably get Samir suspended or expelled. 
she knew that wouldn't do anything for her. Anwen wanted Samir to take responsibility and to learn and grow and prevent other men from inflicting that same pain. She wanted him to actually have to confront what he did and to be part of figuring out what to do about it. So Frank opted for an informal conduct process, meaning it was completely open-ended and he could use restorative justice. Samir agreed to participate. Frank started by asking Anwen what she needed to repair the harm Samir had caused her. How I came up with the things I wanted from Samir, I think really was just accumulation of the years of thinking about it. Um, and uh, just a, a, an inner knowledge of like, this is what I need from this experience for this to be made right. One thing Anwen needed was for Samir to understand the impact he had on her. So Frank first asked Samir to write his testimony of what happened that night. And then he gave Samir Onwin's testimony of what happened that night. So I sat down and uh, I read her perspective and so many things. Oh my God. Um, so many moments of that night that I had completely forgotten. Um, I thought in my brain, I had asked her to take her shirt off. I didn't, I told her, um, I, I did not remember emotionally manipulating her to coming back to, uh, to staying with me. I, I thought from my perspective, I was being a potential like teacher when it came to like oral sex. Turns out, I was basically coercing her into doing this, even though she wasn't comfortable. Like, uh, from my end, I was like, oh, like, this was just fun hookup. But then from her end, this, like, this guy is, like, pushing himself on me. And um, it didn't sound... Like me, it sounded like a monster, but that was the hardest part was that like this, this guy who forced himself onto this girl is me. I think it was a combination of desperation, validation, Wanting to finally get the girl that I've been after forever. I wanted to have fun and run around and just have a bunch of sex because, like, that's what I thought college was. Now I wish I could just go back and talk to the kid and just be like, hey, dude, like, you're coming, your heart's maybe in a good place right now. But here's some things you need to know before you start engaging in sexual activities with other people that will prevent a lot of pain. You're a larger guy. You can't you can't just go ahead and like ask things and then like expect like people not to be intimidated by it. Like if it's not an enthusiastic yes, don't do it. 
I've made it very difficult for her to enjoy many parts of intimacy. I absolutely terrified her for years just by being around. She would spend every day, or at least once at some point, almost every day, trapped in that, that night and, and, and basically reliving it. And she's had to think about it every single day. Um, and I'm not sure if the wounds are all the way healed. I, I doubt they are, but um, um, uh, it's a pain that I can't take away no matter what I do. I can't take that away and I know I've said it a thousand times but I I am sorry I took a few minutes and processed um like that's that's when everything finally clicked and I was like I, I read like I thought I understood before and then I read her testimony and then everything solidified itself for me. I was like, okay, this is what I'd done. After I was done reliving and contemplating and frankly hating myself, um Frank asked me, um if there's anything in my testimony I would like to change. Um, I immediately say yes. And then I start going line by line through Onwin's testimony and saying, can I please add this to my testimony? Can I please add this to my testimony? And so it was basically filling in my testimony with lots of details that I could not remember um, that I didn't remember now because I got to read it and got to relive it. It was scary um, to basically be putting all of this hurt out on the table. Um, it was really important for me to to have him know exactly what I felt um, and, and how big the impact was and how often the impact was. The the process gave me the chance to to really know that I was having an impact um, on him. That 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 my my feelings and my experience actually impacted the way he chose to continue living his life. The process Frank led Onwin and Samir through had three phases that are typical of restorative justice. First, the pre-conference, where Frank met separately with Onwin and Samir for weeks, 
piecing together a mutual understanding of what happened that night and working out what Samir might do to address the harm. Second, the conference, where Anwin and Samir came together face-to-face with Frank, carefully facilitating to talk through everything. Restorative justice conferences aren't always face-to-face, but Anwin decided that she did want to meet with Samir. And this is where she got to ask him questions she still had. Why did you do this? Couldn't you tell I was panicking? How do I know you're not going to do something like that again? And that's where Samir got to answer those questions and tell Anwin about his repair plan. Find ways to tell my story. Write an article for the university magazine. Make Green Dot training mandatory for all Greek letter organizations on campus. Teach young men about consent. Now they were in the third phase, the post-conference. This is where Frank went back and forth between Anwin and Samir, while Samir started doing the things on his repair plan. I... Did you send me yours and I started chopping them together, like just in a Word document, timeline-wise, I think, and... Sorry, go for it. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Like, it was was a collaborative effort. That collaborative effort was a spoken word piece Anwin and Samir created by taking their testimonies and splicing them together. They performed the piece for a group of students at a Green Dot training. It was pretty awkward. Yeah, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah, it was was dead silent. Um... Um. (laughs) So they performed the spoken word piece, and it was filmed, and the video from it ended up becoming part of the training itself. So future students who took a Green Dot training got to see a video of Anwin and Samir telling their story. Samir also wrote a piece for their college magazine with his actual name on it. And he started talking to his guy friends about consent. Uh, like I'll ask like one question and it'll really throw him off. I'm like, so like you enjoyed yourself? Like yeah. Like, did she enjoy herself? It's like, of course she did. I'm like, how do you know? It's like, well, she did. Uh, she did this, this, this. Like, did you ask her? And they're like, no. Why would I do that? I'm like, because it's good to communicate. Wait, if I'm really comfortable with the friends, like I, I tell them to talk to their partners about introducing different methods of communication while participating in sexual acts so that their partners know that they feel comfortable. Like, for example, um, having a safe word to stop sexual, uh, sexual play. Even if it's not super intense, sometimes things happen. Sometimes people get triggered. Sometimes people just want to stop and they want to be able to communicate that effectively. Use a safe word. Another great one that I've been told was like the stoplight system where like if one person doesn't like isn't opposed to what's happening, but wants things to ease up a little bit, they say yellow. And that is a sign for their other partner to be like, okay, keep doing what you're doing, but ease up a little bit versus red is like full stop. Like I need you to stop doing what you're doing. I'm not about that. And it's just these different, really easy, like very easy to implement methods of communication that allow one for better actual sex when you have it 
and then two, prevent a lot of potential pain. As another part of his repair plan, Samir reached out to local public high schools. His idea was to share his story as part of their sex ed programs. My whole game plan was to go in and talk about it from my perspective. And I was hoping that me being able to bring up that exp- uh, that explanation would be effective in hopefully guiding these these like young men into making better choices around consent and, and like consen- consensual sex. But explaining to schools that a guy who had committed sexual assault wants to come in and talk to their youth did not go over well with most schools' administrations. Uh, because that's, it's like, oh, like my kid got spoken to, like a rapist came and spoke to my kid today in sex ed class did not go over well. Um, and so that, that, that project got scrapped real fast. One of the things that strikes me most about Samir is that he seems like such a normal guy. And such a morally complex guy. Remember, he went to take back the night as a support person for his girlfriend, who was a survivor. And another thing, Frank, who so carefully led Onwen and Samir through their restorative justice process, himself was a perpetrator of sexual harassment in college. Sure, there are some unambiguous good guys and bad guys, but for the most part, the picture is more complicated. People are going to have to change. And so, how do people change? Well, we need models. We need models of men coming forward and taking responsibility and showing other men how to do that. We need Senator Al Franken, the minute after the allegations broke, owning up to what was true and announcing what he was going to do as U.S. Senator to push for legislation on sexual misconduct. We need Frank learning from his own experience and learning about restorative justice and applying all of that when dealing with cases of sexual assault on campus. We actually do need Samir talking to young men about what he did and how he's learned from it. Me Too isn't just a reckoning with sexual misconduct. It's a reckoning with how we deal with sexual misconduct. It's a reckoning for Senator Franken and other high-profile perpetrators on the non-criminal side of things with how they are, or in most cases are not, using their positions of power to take leadership. And for the rest of us, it's a reckoning with whether we make room for perpetrators to do that. Whether under the right circumstances we make room for perpetrators to become allies. This issue is so tough. It feels like there's almost nothing that can be said that will get everyone nodding. Some of you might be shaking your heads at the notion of letting perpetrators become allies. 
Some of you might have not even made it all the way here in the story. With this story, I did my best to offer something helpful. And something I find really helpful about restorative justice is that it invites me to keep my eyes on what I consider to be a very worthy prize, repairing the harm to the victim. So in that spirit, let me put out an invitation to keep your eyes on your own prize, on whatever it is you're ultimately hoping to achieve. Beyond punishment, what's your vision for serving justice to perpetrators and to survivors? What's your vision for the relationship between men and women in our society? If what we're talking about is sexual abuse of power, what's your vision for distributing power and negotiating consent and making all kinds of negotiations from the bedroom to the boardroom? What is your vision for the healthy expression of human sexuality? Are there things you feel like you can't say because our culture isn't ready for them? Uh. Like here, like Onwen, you... Mm-hmm. Like you, 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 yes, you've had a lot of time to, well, not just a lot of time, but have put in a lot of effort to working through this. And, um, and you speak about it from a place that feels very empowered and also a place that feels like kind of like matter of fact a little bit. And do, like, do you uh-huh. ever feel like you need to act more like a victim or act more like dramatic or act more in any way? Because that's kind of like what the cultural expectation of you is. Uh, so I actually had this thought this morning before this, where I was like, should I, am I like, am I, should I be upset? Like, uh, do I, do I start crying? Like it totally, totally. I have those thoughts of like, am I not representing this appropriately? And like, screw that. Um, (laughs) I've done a lot of work with this and like, the only reactions I've had to me speaking about it very matter of factly is like, wow, you're so brave or like, that's amazing. And that's actually a really hard response for me to deal with because I mean, I guess it was brave, but there wasn't any other option for me. Um, It's a weird thing to be praised for, for doing something that I felt was necessary. So restorative justice is what Anwen felt was necessary. But what did that mean in terms of retribution for Samir? Well, he wasn't kicked off campus. He didn't go to jail. He did get a conduct reprimand, which is basically a strike on his academic record, but that didn't really affect him. And maybe it feels like he got off too easily or that restorative justice is too lenient? Restorative justice is not lenient. Uh, You're forced to take a look at your innermost darkness. Um, And I think that's one of the most difficult things a person can do is to confront their own shadow. Um, 
and come face to face with themselves. Every time that I've wanted to punish myself beyond all belief, she always said, no, I want you to do better. Don't just take the easy route and lock yourself up or get yourself kicked off campus because that's not going to help anybody. Because she never, she never wanted to punish me. She wanted me to learn. She wanted me to grow. She wanted me to prevent this from ever happening. I, I didn't want to take away his agency because that would just be reversing the roles. I would say what's important to me in the restorative justice process is that both people are given a space where they are empowered to make things better. I want all of this to be shared and I want to speak out about it and I want to tell this story and I want to be telling this story with Samir because it's so powerful to have both of us speaking. Um, but it's, it's really hard, too. Um, I have a hard enough time telling this to friends. And, and the only reason I keep talking to people, I keep doing things like this podcast, and like keep trying to find ways of sharing the story is because I think it helps people. Um, I want to provide an example of an instance of rape in which you can really see that both people are human and both people are more than their actions and can grow. We will occasionally like FaceTime um, and just like catch up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, like, kind of check in every once in a while. Um, I don't know. It's a fairly casual, like, conversation, relationship, word, interaction thing. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's also funny because one of the things I realized, actually, I think, during and after the restorative justice process is that Samir is honestly one of the people that knows me best. And I knew him very, very well, too, because, like, okay, we know each other's, like, deepest horrible uh-huh. moments, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's there's not a lot that can't be said. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're, you're pretty spot on about that. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I don't think I'll ever lose contact entirely with Samir. Anwin and Samir also haven't lost contact with Frank. Samir graduated in 2016 with a degree in psychology and a focus on how relationship problems affect the physiological body. Today he's figuring out what he wants to do with that while working as a bartender and serving water with every drink. Anwen graduated that same year in international political economy and French. She's now launching a business doing custom clothing design for the type of swing dance she loves to do. And she's grateful to say that now days will go by in which she doesn't think at all about that night. 
Anwen and Samir went public to their university, but they haven't really gone public beyond that, which is why we didn't use their real names. Anwen wants to include a link to this episode on her Facebook page, so whichever of her Facebook friends click on it will hear her story. I'll let you know what happened with that in the next episode. And I should mention, restorative justice doesn't necessarily work in all circumstances. Most importantly, the survivor has to want it, and the offender has to be willing to do it. And restorative justice can absolutely go hand-in-hand with traditional criminal justice. Just because someone got expelled or sent to jail doesn't mean they can't work to repair the harm they caused. Okay, so I have to ask you something. Is this your first Reckonings episode? And you were turned onto the show by this topic? If so, my new friend, keep going. Start with the most recent episodes and work your way backwards. If not, and you're a regular around these parts, let me ask you something else. How about recommending Reckonings to one person who you think would enjoy it? And here is a share of my own. Hey, this is Mike from Everything is Stories. Writer Harry Cruz once wrote, Nothing is allowed to die in a society of storytelling people. Like him, we believe stories shape reality. A tricky thing to express because reality is both harmonious and chaotic. However, a good story captures it all. The rhythm and the drone of experience. Every episode of EIS features a narrative from the first-person perspective. These voices have told of their greatest moments where death is very close and where peace is only found in seclusion. Sometimes they explore the philosophy of drifters and outsiders, but most importantly, these stories examine what it is to be human. Take a listen. You may find a definition for reality's highs and lows. Find us on iTunes or anywhere else you subscribe to podcasts, or find out more on our website, eisradio.org. Some heartfelt thank yous to the Friend Foundation and Varda Rabin for their generous support. To David Carp for helping in a million ways, including connecting me with Anwen and Samir. To Frank for leading them through their transformative restorative justice process. To the Campus Prism Project for being a major resource for Frank. And more broadly, for helping universities explore the possibility of applying restorative justice to sexual misconduct. And to the brilliant folks who gave their insights, Helena de Groot, Vika Aronson, Keely Sorensen, Todd Augusta Scott, and Stephanie Guthrie and the team at A Better Man. And last but not least, thank you to our friends on Patreon. Don't you want to be on this list? Greg Vergeeg, Dan Weissman, Trevor Stutz, Tibet Sprague, Kenny Alston, Kyle Studstill, Rose Hulls, P. Foster, Scott Saunders, Jacqueline Gerson, and Christopher. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and if you made it all the way here, let me give one more thank you to you for listening to Reckonings.